Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank Podcast. A chance to look at the world through a class-conscious perspective and to build. Tonight, we have Vassil Tvetovsky to talk about the Democracy at Work initiative and to share a story of the Facebook war against left-wing pages. But first, a look at past headlines across the world. An MIT study recently released has revealed that no electoral fraud had occurred during Bolivia's election. The Organization of American States has lashed out at the survey, saying it was unscientific. Two researchers analyzing the results said it was very likely that the socialist president won the October vote by the 10 percentage points needed to avoid a runoff election. New elections will be held in Bolivia in May. However, the current right-wing coup in the country continues to crack down on dissent with often violent clashes. Ousted leader Evo Morales says that those who organize the coup intend to disqualify their candidates. Venezuelan president Nicolas Maduro has accused the OAS of being a tool of the United States. A decision by Turkey to let migrants move further into Europe has caused a humanitarian crisis. The move came when Turkish President Erdogan said he could no longer enforce a 2016 deal with the EU to prevent migrants entering further into Europe. The resulting surge of migrants has led to clashes on the border. Video shows Greek Coast Guard firing at migrant dinghies, and the Turkish government has said Greece has killed a Syrian man trying to breach the border fence. Millions of Syrians have fled over the Turkish border as fighting has intensified in Idlib province. Turkey already has over 3 million Syrian refugees in the country. Freedom of the press is under question in the US as a ban on Chinese journalists continues in the country. The move comes as Beijing moved to expel two US journalists last month. Chinese government media outlets are also to reduce their US staff by 40%. The US has accused the country of cracking down on free speech. Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu looks to win the third election in a year in Israel. However, once again, it is unclear if his right-wing bloc is able to form a governing coalition. His nearest rival is Benny Gantz, who may have won 32 or 33 seats to Netanyahu's 36 or 37. Neither party will be able to control a majority. Netanyahu is looking to secure a fifth term as president, a record in Israeli history. And due to quarantines in China over the COVID-19 outbreaks, NASA is reporting that its pollution levels have dropped dramatically. Satellite images show that nitrogen dioxide levels, a chemical produced by automobile exhaust, dropped dramatically as Wuhan and other cities fell under quarantine. NASA says that similar drops were recorded during the 2008 recession, but not as dramatically as the quarantine. Local governments have imposed restriction on travel and business, which has led to a decline in the levels of pollution recorded in the cities. Similar drops occur during the Chinese New Year as people leave work to spend time with their families. Coming up, we have Vassil Tsvetovsky to discuss democracy at work. Yes, everyone, we have with us uh, at the moment, we have uh, Vassal, and Vassal is from the Democracy at Work uh, project, and he also is going to be speaking about that, as well as something that's happened to a meme page, a leftist meme page uh, on recently. Uh, welcome, Vassal. Uh, thank you, Richard, for having me. 
No problem, no problem. So if you don't mind, Vessel, could you please just perhaps give yourself a bit of a better introduction than I have already? Uh, go ahead. Well, I'm with the Democracy at Work Party here in the, the United States. We are part of the Democracy at Work movement, which has its own educational organization, institute, uh, uh, cooperatives that work with it and so forth. And uh, our challenge right now is to try to give social capital to the movement and amplify its voices in a broader area in the United States where everybody is atomized and uh, movements have trouble reaching new people outside of those that already disagree with them. And we're trying to break through that dynamic. Uh, and you said it's a party, a political party? Yes, founded in 2019. Uh, few people know about us right now, but uh, <clears throat> we're, gro we're growing. And uh, we're, as we said, the goal is to amplify the voices of those organizations that already exist and are struggling for democracy at work here in the United States and abroad. I see. And and who who was um, who set it up? Uh, it was set up by a group of activists, labor organizers, uh, academics, uh, such as myself. So um, we tried to we tried at the beginning to create a broad base and not just have one type of person. Sometimes a movement will have only activists, and then it's good at uh, organizing events, but not other stuff. So we wanted to have that uh, balance in the middle. So it was a long time in the making. It took us two years to make it. But the idea is to have a balance and be able to outreach to people in multiple ways, including you know, right now we're going to discuss uh, memes and phenomenological content. Um, education goes into it. The classrooms go into it and a bunch of other things go into it as well. And, and you said, um, you know, it's got academics as well as uh, labor movements. Any unions involved uh, from the labor sort of side of things, the activist side of things? Which organizations might people know which are involved? We're trying to work with the International Co Cooperative Alliance um, <clears throat> and uh, the United uh, Federation of Cooperatives here in the United States. The Democracy at Work uh, education organization also works with a lot of worker self-directed enterprises. Um, mm -hmm. So if you go on their websites, they have a list of uh, cooperatives that would be interested in that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we do keep them autonomous from political organizations, though, so we're not trying to... Uh, influence them directly or trying to amplify what they are trying to do and and from the academic side which uh, which academics including yourself of course uh, who else uh, would people know that are involved with democracy now at work sorry uh, well Richard Wolf is obviously the biggest personality in the mm -hmm. broadcast that he has I haven't met him I hope to meet him but uh, Elizabeth Phelan and uh, <clears throat> Stephen Resnick and mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of people that know about us in academia, and it's not that new in those circles. However, it's just hard to get people to come out and say that they support democracy at work, which is trying to uh, redirect the appropriation of surplus value so that the worker controls it, which is a Marxist objective. And uh, what we see in academia is about 17 percent of academics are – if you identify them in a secret poll, they all identify as Marxist. But they're not coming out and they're not teaching and they're not trying to do classes on it. And we're hoping to change that in the future with the, our institute and academy mm. to safety net such that the, they will be able to uh, do classes on Marxism and integrate uh, neo-Marxist and Marxist ideas into the mm. economic dynamic that we have. 
And there's other people that could be it could be in it that uh, necessarily haven't spoken to us yet. Anwar Shaikh has one of the biggest books on capitalism out, and he created it in 2018, uh, which I encourage people to <clears throat> to check out, uh, mm-hmm. which uses the Marxist theory of value in economic statistical analysis that has been published in the journals. It's like a thousand pages long. It's almost like Marxist capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually beats the liberal economic models that are out there. So there's big things happening right now in the United States. YouTube wanted to approach Richard Wolf to sign an agreement with them in order to be able to uh, reach out to people. So there is definitely a movement growing that has potential, whereas mm-hmm. other movements I think have capped. Our movement is in this pre-mobilization stage with potential to grow further, much like the progressives in maybe the 1890s, uh, who ended up becoming a huge movement. That's what we're trying to accomplish in the next uh, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, and so just so people can, can can catch that, the name of the book that you just mentioned? The name of the book that I just mentioned by Anwar Shaikh? Yes. I would recommend also Richard Wolf, Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism. Uh, Wolf and Resnick have a book uh, uh, contending economic theories and the one why Anwar Shaikh had a strange title with capital in it, so I don't remember it. I have it on my capitalism, competition, uh, conflict, and crisis. I think you raised an interesting point there that, that I'd like to get into a little bit. You said that uh, the majority of academics, uh, if you poll them anonymously, will identify as Marxist or, or somewhere in that in that camp. I said percent, um, and that's in, that's in what percentage. 17 percent and in social studies it's obviously lower if you look at the business school and uh, so right 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 and so why do you think there's a difference between what they really think and what they can publicly say and what they can publicly do why won't they publicly um declare themselves as marxists uh well there's many there's many reasons behind that if you go back to even the 1940s uh, john dewey and sydney hook were american pragmatists one of the top political scientists in the United States uh, and top philosophers in the, in the world uh, considered at that time had the Congress of Cultural Freedom and that Congress published a number of the socialist teachers, the, the list of names of socialist teachers and they got the ax. And there's just this uh, idea that if you go Marxist with your teaching, uh, you will be sabotaged and you will get, get the get the axe. And we have to break through. It's a fear dynamic. It exists. Mm. We have to break break through it. People whisper in the academies here. And um, yeah, we, we know that uh, if you teach Marxism, there will be a lot of bad reviews about you on the Internet. That's not new. Mm. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, the departments are not willing to take a course specifically on teaching Marx or labor theory of value. So you have to be able to um, sort of work it around the dynamics that exist. And as mm-hmm. some of that is, in, is endogenous too. Marx is in, is in the 1850s and the, in the literature that uh, analyzes capitalism right now, as I just named those books, is very new. Mm-hmm. So I think you will see that change in about 30 to 40 years. But what they're going to start doing is teaching Wolf and teaching Resnick and teaching Sheikh. They're not going to be teaching uh, Marx directly besides a few passages. Because, I mean, I have... Marx's book here, Volume 4 of Capital, and it is huge. Americans yeah. would not be able to read it or understand it. Let me be, uh, be clear. I'm not trying to be mean. The philosophy that's in Marxism, in Capital, is 
from the from the nineteenth century, and it's written in a way that's completely against what America the type of information that Americans are used to processing. Not just because it's socialist, not just because there's labor theory value in it. That part's easy. The style that it is written and the view that it comes from, and that goes back to I don't want to talk too long on the subject, but mm-hmm. it goes back to a split within philosophy between Machiavelli and the and the Stoics. You see, the, the Machiavellians thought that fortune is something that you can seize, and the Stoics thought that you're coping with yourself. And in philosophies that have taken the coping dynamic where people don't know what the world is around them and they're taking it in, they're processing it wrong, that's where Marx comes in. He's saying, you know, you think you know what money is, but you don't. You think you know what value is, but you don't. And Americans are not used to seeing that. They're used to saying, I know what all this stuff is. Now tell me what I can do with it. And that's the Machiavellian mindset, which is you can seize fortune. Here's how you do it. Here's how you do this. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are the type of books that we're used to reading here in America since uh, since we're kids, if we even read at all, which many of us don't. So mm-hmm. um, introducing them to a new dynamic that sees the world as something other than what you think it is is very, very difficult. It comes all the way back from a Socratic tradition. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've even uh, taken a whole class that uh, talked about, that related Marx and Aristotle in a way. So um, I see. The, the complete I see. philosophic tradition is different within it. I see. So so I, I guess, so. yeah, a part of, it sounds to me, a part of democracy at work's effort is to then try and bring all this stuff uh, to, the, to, the, to the modern American. To the, to the modern sort of times. Um, and you did mention that you are also talking about online stuff, um, online activities. And I, I suppose this does bring us back to part of what we wanted to bring you in for. Uh, in terms of this uh, page uh, of your colleague of yours or a friend of yours, um, Succulent Socialist Memes, um, could you explain what's happened there? Uh, well, if you mind, can I go back a second and talk about ahead, what's yeah. on that page? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, organizing on the streets in the United States is very, very difficult. In order to do it, one must be part of a mainstream social movement because to do it on the grassroots level by yourself is almost impossible. It takes about a hundred bucks to register even a conference room uh, and hope that somebody shows up and then, you know, people don't show up. The social capital in the United States is one of the lowest in the world. So we're dealing with a culture that's very atomized. If I could just jump in for a second, sorry, perhaps people aren't familiar with the term social capital. Uh, I might be familiar with it, you might be familiar with it, but perhaps we could just quickly define that. Uh, social capital is your how much interaction and how much social interaction you can generate outside of politics, um, outside of politics, outside of civil society. A lot of it just. The way to think of it is just social interaction and the amount of it. I mean, there's a book called Bowling Alone. Uh, that shows how people used to have a bunch of bowling leagues and then now they they can't even get together to bowl. They can't. The parks are all empty and stuff like that. So it's very hard to get people together to do anything. And mm. social capital doesn't directly relate to politics, but it does because you do need to get people together in order to do anything political. Right. Um, okay. Well, that's perfect. So if you could carry on with uh, where we were. So in, in this atomized culture with low social capital that we have, we need to find a way to break uh, break through. Online is one way that uh, people think has the possibility of, of doing that, 
But on the other hand, we have the 10,000, you know, variable algorithms that are trying to bring us down. So the project was to try to analyze that algorithm and look for ways around it such that we can um, reach new people and bring them in. Uh, whereas the social movements that we have, they're not really interested in doing that. You know, there's there's two dynamics in in America to consider. One is the union dynamic that you mentioned in the beginning. The other is the social movement dynamic. Mm-hmm. The unions are very good at outreach. Were when they were very big, they were very good at outreaching. They were very good at converting people. Um, however, what they couldn't do is incorporate uh, struggles of civil rights leaders and uh, women's movement leaders and uh, LGBTQ plus leaders into the organization. They couldn't do it because their base of people, which came primarily from from the South and these agricultural uh, unionists and industries, uh, weren't going to have it. They were very much against even reactionary to the Civil Rights Act in a way. America has that long history of trade unions not being able to incorporate the the struggles of social movement leaders in the, in the 19th century there was even a situation where an all-white union killed 100 black people um mm-hmm. and launched a war on black unions so and the mm-hmm. capitalist said i can just pay half the working class to kill the other half the working class so you have this dynamic of really good outreach and not a lot of integration and then on the other hand the response to that was let's organize through the social movement and labor unions have fallen down Social movements have risen up. If you look at the amount of activists in the country, however, you will notice that they're about the same, which is the interesting part. There's a political science paper by Hacker and Pearson from 2010, if you want to, if anybody wants to look at that. What they've done is basically they've switched to organizations. It hasn't been the unions have broken down. Social movements rose and they took the activists from the unions and tried to solve their problems, tried to solve their (laughs) difficulties of being able to integrate multiple people white urban and agriculturalist in the United States. Mm-hmm. But what they ended up doing is uh, adopting the same thing that the unions were good at. They, the social movements can't do. They can't outreach. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and you see that. I'm not trying to be mean, mean to them. They're not, they're not capable of outreaching to conservatives. They're not capable of outreaching to, to liberals. They're bunkering down on the people who already support them because the social movement base comes from all over um, the entire country. Anybody can join it. So they're very ideological. Um, <clears throat> they're within their own, their, own, their own spectrum all the time meeting people who think exactly like them. And that makes them even less able to communicate effectively. Um, right. So there's there's that problem. So we're trying to solve the two problems here at Democracy at Work. How do we count it? How can we outreach effectively and integrate people? So one of the projects that we did, and this was, uh, I'll just be honest about it, was, was a psychological operation that we were carrying out for the last two years. We created a page and we put a guy in charge of it that the system thought was a liberal, this very young guy. Mm-hmm. And that person pretended like, he wanted just Bernie to run for president, and that was his the, the, the main objective. So we were outreaching to local liberal groupings and trying to bring in people who weren't specifically socialist. And once we brought them in, once we created a base out of those local groupings, uh, the algorithm 
it, it's completely different than had we gone and started blasting, you know, socialist socialist memes all of a sudden. And we slowly work them uh, to our direction while at the same time doing advanced models of, of calculus and differential analysis of how the algorithm works. And we figured out a number of interesting things. We were able to boost our outreach the 30, 40 million people, the guy Larry screenshotted it and posted this on the page about six months back. An outreach of 30 million when it should have been, according to the algorithm, around 3 million at that time with the amount of uh, people and support that we had. So we were finding workarounds around the old, their their system. So just to for clarify, this is obviously, this is Facebook's algorithms. This is the Facebook's, all of that, right? Right. 10,000 variable algorithms that they have. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were able to do two things. We were able to outreach to new people, uh, create a, create local ways of, of reaching people, uh, which two things, those are two things that other people couldn't do. And we were slowly bringing them to socialism and we were uh, amplifying our, our outreach level out on there. So we ran into a bunch of problems immediately once people saw that that, that was happening. You know, we <laughs> had a... Uh, accusations levied against us by the FBI coming over, investigating my, myself and other and other people that we were spreading um, a, a list of ICE agents and and stuff like that that didn't come from us. And uh, we had this, so just the the FBI actually um, visited you in relation to that. That's right. Wow. Okay. And, and so to clarify, the the uh, the accusation was that uh, a bunch of ICE agents. Uh, was their address or identity, identities were being listed and shared on your pages, right? Not on our pages, but through us. Through us, okay. Not not on the on the Facebook page. Okay. We, we were doing a we were doing a few things. We were trying to get to uh, get ourselves in through conservative. We created conservative profiles and we try to get ourselves into local groups and we try to get their uh, congressmen or local council members to share stuff that we said was from Ronald Reagan. When actually it was from Karl Marx. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so hold on, can you give an example? Did you achieve that? Uh, well, I don't. I don't want to give an example of a specific person that that we we targeted, but there was uh, one of the mainstream fact-checking organizations had to correct those Reagan quotes. And if you look on uh, Google, I'm sure you can find it. Um, right. They had to correct and say and give out a, a memo, I guess, that this this isn't a Reagan quote. Don't do this. If you're being asked to share this, don't do it. Um, Could you share what the quote was, perhaps? What was the Marx quote, if you if you do recall? One of the quotes was, you know, uh, under no circumstances should the arms be be <coughs> sacrificed. Everybody should be armed. That one. It doesn't doesn't go okay. quite like that, but I'm sure you. Yeah, know I know the one you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okay, and so, so obviously just um, just to go back there, so uh, the fact check had to clarify that those weren't Reagan quotes, and I assume the people uh, involved got some egg on their face, some some Marxist egg on their face. I, I believe so, yes. <laughs> okay, um, I just want to go back, just recap a little bit there. So uh, it sounds to me then you you obviously just sort of took as a fact that if you went on and did online organizing um, with a sort of clear, we are socialists, we are leftists, we are Marxist stamp on your activities and sort of as you're on your profile, as you started out, that you wouldn't necessarily be able to reach uh, the, the, the masses of people um, outside of 
that, that outside of the sort of predetermined borders given by the algorithms. So you'd be posting things and it would only entering the, the echo chamber as it's come to be called. So you sort of took that as a fact and, and then try to work around that. Is that right? That's exactly right, yeah. Okay. And, and not only will you only post your echo chamber, your outreach will be noticeably limited as soon as you get to about 10,000 uh, likes or so. You, we would have had a an outreach of 30 million less than what, what we had had we gone down that route. So say that again. So if you had gone down a different you route, you had, you had a reach of 30 million. Have you gone down a different route? You would have only gone to maybe three million. That's right. With the amount of with the amount of likes that we had, we would have gone down to three million. And that was the biggest Marxist uh, outreach uh, effort, I think, in the United States. Now, let me just say, people are always like, "Well, it's just memes." That's something that people say. Oh, it's just memes. Listen, absolutely not. Absolute. That is absolutely incorrect. The idea of memes goes back a very long way. There was a there was a philosopher called Husserl who wrote a paper on the effect of phenomenology on on people, mm-hmm. and that was taken up by the biggest one of the biggest philosophers in the 20th century, Heidegger, that showed that not only do you take in the world around you through visual imagery, but you can develop ready at hand responses to those imagery. Okay, mm-hmm. and the that guy was German. He published the book Being in Time in 1920s, which maybe you've, you've heard of. It was a very famous book. It was taken on by the Gestapo that they would uh, that they would create phenomenological content that way. The Nazis were the first people to really develop meme culture. They basically threw out posters to people, and that's what that's what convinced them. The liberals were on TV. The socialists were on TV talking for about three minutes. Those those silly talking head videos that they were doing. And the Nazis mm. were just giving out posters with like one quote on it. And it was, they was, they were sometimes funny. Sometimes they were showing strength and people really responded to that noticeably across Germany. And that was picked up and it's been picked up by every single intelligence agency, every single media organization, everyone studies phenomenology. They don't even call it. They don't credit Husserl and Heidegger. And mm. those people were not trying to help the, you know, the people, do propaganda. They were trying to just develop knowledge. They were philosophers. Husserl was Jewish. So um, that dynamic is very, very serious. People are being yeah. manipulated through pictures, and we were trying to do it, do manipulate them our way because they're being manipulated against against us all over the internet. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think that is fascinating. Actually, I I didn't know the I hadn't considered the the obviously the the the, the Nazi sort of fascist element, but is that is pretty uh yeah historically based and of course but still fascinating the, con- the concept that you know uh memes uh were first used by by the nazis but um you know jokes aside in terms of what absolutely yeah yeah but uh, in terms of this page obviously um you know as you've just said a very effective means of of, of creating propaganda or information or phenomenology and being used by all sides and having the reach that you you had you know 30 million or so um so what happened to this page then well it, it was completely hacked from us we woke up and it, and it was hacked um what we found out is that Larry, that Larry, the one of the main guys, had uh, clicked on a link um, before before the the hackers actually uh, did it, and we believe that that's how they did it. When you click on a link, they can have access to all your all your files. There's a way to uh, incur 
uh, I'm not a technical expert, but if you want to read a book on how how to spy, I think I can I can point you in that direction. And uh, one of the ways is to fish somebody. It's called phishing. Right. And you them to click on a link, and then you have access to their computer, and then you can find out when's a good time to hack them and do other operations and so forth. So we we put out a workshop against phishing, and I guess Larry wasn't the uh, you know, it, it's, it's very innocent. It's like, hey, is this is this you in this article over here, or or hey, can you please share this on your page or something? And you click on it, and then you know you're you're screwed after that. So, um, we we wake up and there's a profile that has our stuff, and it it put us into be political and analyst while it took control of the page and it registered it into their name uh, as a business, and then it then it purged us completely. And now it shared some some spam nonsense. So the page has gone completely dark. And uh, this was not there. They weren't trying to make money off it. They weren't trying. They were. This was not financial motivation. It was the pure act of sabotage uh, against us. I see. And so they've they've hacked it completely. Will you be able to get back to it? Have you spoken to Facebook? Will you be able to access it again, or is it completely lost? We believe it's lost because it. it Here's the catch-22 that we enter in as leftists. The only way we can defend against something like this completely is if we register ourselves as a business. If you register yourself as a business, it doesn't matter if you're even left or Republican. Or it, the Facebook algorithm will try to destroy you. Uh, it will not let you grow. Uh, you, there's a huge demand of leftists who are actual businesses and who to put up profiles on Facebook, and they're not able to reach 30 million people. And they're not able to... Um, to outreach effectively. Even Richard Wolf, he's had that profile that he has over there in Democracy at Work for a very long time, and he does he didn't have anything close to the outreach that uh, that we had. So, um, if you register, you're screwed, and if you don't register, this stuff can happen to you. Because when you mm. when you complain, you have to prove that it's your business, and we we didn't register it for it to mm. be our business. Um, I see. So yeah, so it, it's it's a you can either register yourself and have no reach or have all the reach and then run the risk of, of being hacked. Exactly. And once you register, you have to be very super honest about exactly what you're doing. We couldn't do this uh, operation if we registered and said that we were doing uh, exactly what we wanted to do. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in terms of who might have done this, uh, do you, do you have any idea who who might have done this? Who might have hacked? It? Is it just a standard? Is it just someone trying to capture the the amount of uh, the, the actual amount of traffic you have and just use it to to put spam and adver adverts and whatnot on there, or is it is it more nefarious? Richard, who do you think it is? I, I mean, I I, <laughs> I don't know particularly. I mean, I could get I, it would you know it's sort of it would you, it would seem that it could be a state actor or sort of uh, a sort of maybe um, a political rival. You know, somewhere in the in the political sphere. But uh, I mean, I would. So, do you have any sort of evidence as to who it might have been? Has someone messaged you? Uh, has someone left a, a sign or a trail? Uh, no, no, no. And uh, if we if we if we speculate, people will call it a, a conspiracy theory. So it's a catch twenty two for us that we can't really uh, say say much about it. You know. Right. 
you know our bias. We think it, we think that it was a human intelligence agency. I don't think it was my neighbor. I don't think it was the guy across the street. I don't think it was a rival organization trying to take down uh, this page. I don't I don't buy that one bit. And uh, the evidence to me points to what the human intelligence agencies here have been doing for the last uh, 60 years. Um, it's fine if you yell at your echo chamber, but if you do anything else, it's not going to work out for you. And if you target politicians, it's not going to work out for you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been the message that we've gotten for a very long time as socialist organizers in the in the United States. Um, the FBI has a actual published budget on dealing with memes. Okay. Really? So what is the budget on, on, on FBI's budget on memes? I just want to know. You can look at the, what they do to suspicious memes. So they have a budget on dealing with suspicious memes that they have published. Okay. Uh, they won't say what they do with that budget exactly, but there is it's a it's a published thing. Um, and this is the one of the top Marxist pages. It is reaching 30, 30 million people. We have been we have come under an, an investigation, and uh, I, I can't see anybody else being so nefarious about mm-hmm. doing something like this i just can't <laughs> mm, i see i see and um, so what are the next steps in terms of uh going forward do you start from the bottom with another page that's um you know follows the the, the recipe you set before with a big reach but risking risking losing it all do you set up a socialist a second socialist memes website uh, what, what are the next steps uh, we have to discuss that, and we will have a meeting on it to discuss it. Um, from what we can tell, we can't repeat the same strategy. We can't outreach the liberals first, because even if we got somebody that no, nobody knows and we were able to do everything again, people in America have become much more radical because of the election. So it's not just you know run Bernie, run, and try to try to get them that way. Uh, people who are against Bernie Sanders don't want anything to do with the name socialism, and people who are for Bernie Sanders um, have their their mind already set up. So we have nobody to actually bring uh, closer to us using the same method methodology. We're gonna have to switch things up, and uh, it's not that disappointing. That's that's mm-hmm. what I'll say about it. We we expected that something would happen. And we just got to go and try to try it again and, and keep coming up with different methods. Uh, propaganda is very difficult. We're happy that we are able to reach so many people. We're ecstatic about that. I work better than expected. So um, just keep just keep going with the with the propaganda teams, which are different than what our party is doing. By the way, I want to emphasize that our party is not involved. In this. When you're interviewing me here about this this is a propaganda project that i was doing as an individual it's not mm-hmm. a propaganda project that the democracy at work uh, movement mm-hmm. was sure. was up to mm-hmm. so i suppose uh, since we, it is the election year we have you know it's 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 sitting on the edge of the discussion which is the the bernie question the democratic party question where, and i'm sure some people are thinking where does democracy at work sit in relation to the democratic party and also uh, bernie sanders uh, you know we're talking about how people are – this project is about bringing people closer to a, a socialist or a leftist um, uh, sort of take on the world and maybe a, changing the world for that. Um, and But 
you could say, I'm quite sure that you might agree, that Bernie has definitely had that effect. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, good questions. Now I'm going to answer as a re- representative of democracy at work and tell you what our what our take is on it as a, as a party. Mm-hmm. Um, the question simplifies to, if we're approaching someone, what is the most effective use of your time? That that's what that's what it simplifies here. Uh, if you think about it logically, so if you're as a person and you're trying to to get progress, what is the most effective use of your of your time? Is it to go campaign for Bernie Sanders and and the Democratic Party, or or is it something else? Well, let's discuss let's discuss that, and you you can see for yourself. First of all, where does Bernie Sanders fit in on a on a historical from a historical perspective? You will notice that every single time um, a, a system has come under threat or a re- relationship has come under threat as the employee-employer relationship in the United States has, and people are sick of the boss taking the value from them, um, it goes in two directions. One is a movement to try to give people better wages, better, better circumstances of living, and so on. And the other one is a movement to try to attack that relationship directly. You saw that in the United States with the with the slavery movement. There were two anti-slavery movements. One of them wanted the slaves to have more time outside, uh, more privileges in education, and better standards of living. And you had another movement, the abolitionists, who wanted to get rid of slavery altogether. So mm-hmm. that's if you want to picture us, that's where we fit in. There's two movements. There's one to regulate uh, capitalism and to inc- and to increase uh, people's standards of living and so on which we're not against, but at the same time, we're taking the abolitionist strategy where we're saying you get, eventually you're going to realize that these uh, tactics and strategies are so ineffective through time that you have to attack the relationship directly. Uh, that's where democracy at work factors in. Now, you can go vote for, for Sanders. You can go camp, campaign for Sanders. But the fact of the matter is at some point you're going to have to build a movement outside of the Democratic Party. I think most people realize that. They don't see the part the Democratic Party as the end all uh, of organization. So <clears throat> there's definitely intersection for them to work with us. And the last point is, and people don't might not uh, see it this way, but it's actually true. All the great ideas in the United States are taken from third party programs. You say we, <laughs> the propaganda out there is that third parties have no effect because two parties are always winning in the in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely incorrect. The biggest thing being discussed right now, the biggest reformation being discussed comes from the Green Party. And you know that the Green New Deal, right? The New Deal was influenced by the Socialist Party of America. They've completely rewritten that history that the New Deal came from socialists. When FDR ran in in, uh, 1928, he had absolutely no intention of passing anything like the New Deal. He was running as a moderate on race. And Mm -hmm. The reason the New Deal got passed is because socialists organized through the unions and <clears throat> threatened the government of the United States into signing a New Deal with them. So third parties have this enormous effect because their platforms are things that people can copy and paste and simply take into the mainstream. So uh, absolutely what we do has an effect. If we create a democracy at work movement with a democracy at work program, even if we're not successful directly, somebody from one of the mainstream parties is going to pick up that program and it will have an effect. And that's something that's going to immediately help people directly. 
Whereas the other stuff are measures that can, they can be undone later, they can be very ineffective. This will immediately help people. So I think my, my final question is, um, I'm sure that some people might be thinking this uh, at this point, is that uh, sort of, I don't know, over the last two centuries, um, the drive for Marxism or socialism or worker-centric policy and, and a, worker, a worker's world um, has always had sort of organizations can form and say, okay, well, you know, we're growing, we're small, uh, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when we have the revolution, when we have the change, um, you know, things will be better. These are the policies. This is the plan. We, we've got time and we're, we're working on it. Um, but if we consider and factoring in sort of climate change, um, whichever expert you might want to see, let's, let's say most of them put a 10 year sort of limit as to when things get catastrophic or, or those sort of irreplaceable or irritable, sort of not unchangeable, you know, before we can, um, you know, before it's too late, basically, we've got 10 years. So considering that, that timeline, um, and considering the choices that people have, uh, how do you think that factors in, in terms of what organizations should do, uh, such as yourself, such as people who want to vote, um, just generally speaking, yeah, across the board, where, where does that factor in into our choices and our political, our political, uh, our political lives. It factors in greatly. When the when the 20th century began, people were very optimistic. Um, they were optimistic of technology, and they were optimistic of the possibilities of exploiting the earth for their benefit. And the 21st century has begun the exact opposite way. Right. Uh, <clears throat> World War One was a big shock to people, and it showed them that technology doesn't have to help them. It can also destroy them. It can destroy the Earth. And uh, in the moments after World War Two, when all these nuclear uh, bombs were being created, people had that fear. People had the fear that uh, the world is the world can end at any moment. And now we are in two thousand and one. <clears throat> In the 2000s, and we have sort of the same fear that people had uh, when the first nukes were were on after after World War II that the world can end uh, for us. My advice is first of first of all, we have to be very realistic about what is being said, which isn't always the case of what social movements are making it out. I I know people at UNLV who are um, who who, stu who study the climate and being saying that. Uh, in about 12 years, there's going to be irreversible damage to the climate. It's not the same thing as saying the world is ending. Okay, we don't. There's many variables that we don't know that go that go into calculations on environment. How good are humans at adapting to environmental changes? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know about you, but if you go to India for the first time in your life and you're an American, you've never been to India. I don't want to make fun of Indians, but you will get sick. There's no doubt about it that you will get sick your first week. If, if you've never been used to that kind of climate and you come from the United States, you will get sick. Um, but eventually you, you, you do adapt to it somewhat. So we're not completely screwed when it comes to our, what our own bodies can handle in terms of what the environment is, give, is giving out. Yes, we do need to reverse things. Um, and we don't know how, if, how irreversible they will, they will be. We'll have to figure it out but you have to go in if you're organizing you have to go in from an optimistic perspective you can't go in from the perspective that the world can end 
we have the potential right now to build technology that has the ability to proliferate WSDs uh, throughout the United States and through the world. We didn't have that potential in 1917. The idea was let's take things over first and then we'll develop the technology to actually have a new system. Now we have the ability to do it. So there's there's so many reasons to be optimistic as well that to just take the pessimistic route is not that effective. Um, uh, don't you think there's a there's a perhaps um, some uh, the sense of urgency though might be something that can propel people to to give us the 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 kickstart that maybe we've lacked in the past that that the capital accumulation system that we have going on right now the the, the commodity system is the reason we have this catastrophe catastrophe perhaps not the end of the world but a you know nearly nearly as bad as the end of the world with you know, massive population displacement and, and all those things that they've described. But yes, don't you think that this could uh, be used, uh, you know, uh, and, and rightly so, to to change things and, and implement what you've been talking about? Not in the United States. In the United States, we need to take a different view because of the two-party state. We we have to take the view that it's going to take a very long time to build a movement up, and that's different than the view that maybe people can take in Europe, where they have their own party already socially organized. And they, they are competitive in, in elections immediately. Movements in the United States are very slow to develop. The progressive movement took about 40 years. The unions took about uh, 60 years to come into force. Um, the civil rights movement took a very long time. So with the restrictions that we have, this, this I call it infantile, 18th century constitution, that even the people who made it were like, hey, you need a new constitution every now and then. And we still kept the same 18th century nonsense together um we're so restricted from 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 being able to organize in the in this country that we have to take a very long-term route we have to tell them honestly what to expect if we make false promises they won't want to organize with us so our dynamic is a little bit different on that uh, in that case well uh, I thank you very much for, for being with us today, uh, Vassal. I've been very intrigued by this. This is very good. And I think maybe we might have you on again in the future to talk about uh, maybe some more of the work that's going on and maybe an update as to see what, what the follow-up has been to uh, to the takedown of, of, the, of that page. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I hope uh, we'll speak again soon. Thank you very much. And that is it for our podcast. You can catch us every Monday for new content please consider supporting us on Patreon so that we can remain independent. A link is below in the description. If you are an avid reader of leftist texts, please get in touch with us. We at the Marxist Think Tank would like to talk to you. To volunteer or to submit a news tip, email admin at marxistthinktank.org. A special thanks to Sean Sanchez for music. This podcast has been produced by Reggie Truman and I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.